welcome to Faith in Letters, a podcast at the intersection of Christianity, the writing life, and the wide world of books. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. Chris Hoke is a jail pastor, gang chaplain, and the author of Wanted, a spiritual pursuit through jail, among outlaws, and across borders. He lives in Skagit County, Washington, which is a moody stretch of beautiful green farmland up north of Seattle, where he is the founder of Underground Ministries and the One Parish, One Prisoner Project. In my experience, people who are talented at advocacy and who have selflessly given themselves to a life of service uh, and loving the poor and agitating for justice and then people who write well and who write compelling stories about that kind of life or about that kind of work are often different people you can find writers who've decided to immerse themselves in a world that is not their own and bring back stories from it for the rest of us that's relatively rare you can also find people who are altruistic and who have really devoted themselves to loving the poor even rarer in our world sadly but to find somebody who's both doing the work that Chris is doing and who can write about it with eloquence and honesty and beauty is incredibly uncommon incredibly rare and he's one of those people Chris's writing combines a true literary quality with a visceral unvarnished take on the violent chaotic and strikingly disarming world of the guys he's spent the last decade working with in the jails and on the streets of Skagit County, Los Angeles, and Central America. Here's Chris Hoke. Chris Hoke, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Really grateful you came on. Uh, You are a gang pastor, self-described gang pastor and jail chaplain with Underground Ministries and the author of a memoir titled Wanted, A Spiritual Pursuit Through Jail Among Outlaws and across borders. I've been really excited to have you on. Uh, I've been reading the book over the last three weeks or so, and I was just really, really moved by it. Um, full disclosure for people, uh, just so that they know, I went to graduate school in Seattle with your wife. We weren't particularly close, but I have fond memories of her uh, kindness toward me. Uh, you live up in northern Washington, north of Seattle, and uh, maybe we can just dive by, right in by kind of having you give us a little thumbnail sketch of the work that you do uh, and the men and women you work with, because this book came out uh, in 2016, and just if people end up reading the book, it'll just bring them up to that point. So update us on kind of what you're doing and and what you've been doing, both in terms of what the book covers and and kind of generally what you're up to these days. Cool. Well, um, the book isn't super, uh, it's not a seamless chronology, but different short stories tell a little bit of my journey up the West Coast from uh, kind of what I call an over-churched kind of evangelical upbringing in the suburbs of Southern California, uh, kind of deferring not to go to Christian colleges, but sensing my way into like East Oakland and UC Berkeley and places that I was both sociopolitically, like, you know, living in an inner city and then going to university that were definitely off the path from the kind of the conservative evangelical suburbs I was in. Um, but then found myself coming up to this organization in Northwest Washington in the Skagit Valley um, called Tierra Nueva, where uh, I wanted to kind of combine my haunting of, because I raised my hand all the time growing up to follow Jesus. And I think I slowly became disillusioned with the church that used the phrase follow Jesus as code for be a good church boy, keep coming back, don't have sex with your girlfriend. Um, but I wanted to actually follow this dude who was hanging out with all the unwanted elements of Palestinian society and um, where something dramatic and cosmic happened in the place of a criminal justice system on the cross. And so I think the story had just so gotten in my bones that it, I found myself in a small county jail in Washington state to study theology, not to do outreach. But there was a, there was a THD in Old Testament and a pretty radical um, liberation theologian who was doing theology in the Skagit County Jail here among um, meth cooks and felons and gang members and working with undocumented migrant farmworker families out in the fields that pick strawberries and raspberries and cucumbers here in the temperate kind of misty valley. So I came up here to study theology in the jail and get closer to the work 
I'd heard about in the red letters as a kid. Um, and what I didn't expect is going into these late night kind of circles of chairs to read the Bible in a new way with this guy that would ask questions and invite parallels with folks making parallels in their lives on the margins of society with what's happening in these gospel stories. I didn't think the guys my age with tattoos on their faces and on their necks would, um, <laughs> just, I just loved them. Uh, the, these guys were gang members. I had no past with gang members, but they were, the, they were the funniest. They were the most sharp or astute with them looking at, uh, political social parallels with who are the the leaders in this passage and who are the leaders in the Skagitbao, who are the rich, who are the poor, who are the outsiders, who are the insiders, who are the prostitutes and the tax collectors, where would they be today? They could make these parallels instantly. Um, and they uh, are really good at outreach. So they reached out, to, reached out to me and asked me to come make pastor visits with them. I said, hold up, like, pastor was kind of a bad word to me still. I wanted to be a grassroots activist, theologian maybe. They're like, we don't know what that is. You're the pastor, Holmes, and invited me to come visit one-on-one -on -one late at night. And in these tiny kind of um, lawyer rooms, a crude table, and a, a really terrible halogen light up above us, late into the night, one guy after another, I found a kind of raw, honest spiritual life that I hadn't had anywhere else in my upbringing, in a lot of different re religious spaces. I could pray with these guys where there was like laughter and profanity, but there were tears. There was, there was storytelling and I could just be me. There was no one breathing down my neck theologically. There were no um, overhead projectors of songs I needed to sing. I could be me and they could be them. And I felt a contact with, with God's love in a way that I'd only heard described in songs my whole life. But for me, it wasn't in a worship space. It wasn't during a quiet time. It was holding the hands of some of the, um, of folks that had done all sorts of unspeakable things. And that's where I felt a real just fire hose of, of joy and affection and a connection with the God I was reading all sorts of theology books about. So that's how I got hooked. I became a gang pastor. I kind of submitted to that ordination from below, so to say. And for the next decade, I was pastoring, shepherding, chasing around with letters to prisons and going to court with guys and living with half of them and through a little apartment we had at Tiranueva, being kind of a fully immersed pastor of this underworld. And then over the last four or five years, I've shifted into really focusing on the change I've seen in guys. It's really not accompanying them on the streets, but when they're in prison, writing letters, that there's a real depth and focus in letter writing and seeing prison as kind of like hell or Hades in our society and that there's a kind of fellowship that happens in the tombs and in the Hades. And my friends, when they come home, walking with them and rolling away the courts, the debts, the non-felony friendly apartments and employment and all the bureaucracy and forms around town, that this is a way of rolling away the stones and practicing resurrection, which I think is what was the greatest hope I heard growing up. I don't want to see the dead raised. That's what Jesus is always doing. So I think that's still shape of my imagination is so now we're, we started a new organization uh it's called underground ministries and we're organizing employers and churches around western washington to be in relationship directly with people who are locked up and to practice resurrection by being in re-entry relationship with guys for what we say is mutual transformation it's not just about outreach or helping guys but hopefully this is going to change you and your church the way it changed me the book is really, or was for me really, in the best possible sense, uh, just kind of this headlong cascade of stories, just really rich stories about actual people and actual encounters you had. There is a lot of introspection. You come across as somebody who's intelligent, analytical, maybe prone to a, a little bit of uh, depression. I mean, you, you write openly about that, but despite the introspection that is... Um, and even the, the theological musings that we can get to later, and which I found fascinating at several points that are sprinkled throughout, it's primarily and, and grippingly because of it, just this, yeah, this succession of stories and characters and events and locations. Um, what, what was the process of writing the book like? And I think what I'm most interested in is because you mentioned in several points in the book 
sort of as an aside uh, about how you would at times, and maybe this was happening a lot, although you only mentioned it a few times, like actually taking notes and stuff while visiting guys or just kind of scribbling madly trying to get their phrases down. When did you decide and what was the process of deciding to, to write an actual uh, you know, story or series of stories or what turned into a book about these men? Because you could have obviously done the work uh, without sort of documenting it in that way. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. What, what, how, how did that, how did that uh, component of, of the work and just of your own personal calling or talent or however you view your writing kind of play out into this book? Yeah, it's a cool question. Um, there's definitely a story there for me i was raised with a lot of really like really good like ap literature teachers in high school and i always loved literature but i always thought my kind of creative outlet was like at first when i was young i thought it was poetry and then as i got older i definitely was into songwriting and my longtime goal was to be a indie rock <laughs> frontman and that i could do some of the work along the margins of society um, as like a day job. But my real passion was to, was, uh, was music. Um, in, in, the, in the tradition of like, I don't know, David Bazan and Wilco and uh, it's, that's a lot of the music that was really pumping me up in my early 20s. Um, so that, I think that kind of love of literature and story, and I was always reading novels and memoirs, um, but I always thought, you know, music would be my thing. Um, but I found as I was living in a, that this ministry building where I was having guys come over all the time, I was trying to always still writing music. It's, it's nice living in a church building where there's like in the middle of the night, no one's there in the sanctuary. You can turn up the speakers and crank up a Fender amp and play piano and record stuff. So I was doing a lot of music, but it's so hard to get to corral musicians. I was like, this is what I do all day. I pastor people. I try to get these guys to appointments, texting, chasing them this is not fun where I'm trying to, you know, coordinate schedules with drummers and bassists and, and I can't boss them around because I, uh, <laughs> I'm not paying that. Uh, and, and so at the same time I started to kind of write a few stories just hit me when I came home. And this was a story that flipped me is, is one of the chapters in the book that's called angle of uh, descent where there was a guy that, um, I got a call from the jail one night where I, you know, I normally go in as a, as a chaplain meeting one-on-one with guys, oftentimes gang affected, um, in addition to Bible studies. And every once in a while, the jail would call me when there'd be like a situation they thought maybe I could come and help out with. And there was a guy who had attempted suicide, they said, and that he was in the suicide watch room and that he had asked specifically for me to come have a one-on-one. I didn't recognize the name. So I went down there and they had me step into this small room. It's maybe, I don't know, like a, a walk-in closet size. The only thing on the ground is a plastic mat like for refugees to sleep on and a guy wearing nothing but like a smock, a Velcro smock. He's naked underneath. And this is the no harm suit. And he's, I thought he'd be awkward. He'd be kind of depressed. Uh, and I've had a lot of, kind of just awkward meetings with guys that needed, to, I don't know, maybe like liability to meet with a chaplain, but they're not making eye contact. And it's really hard this guy was ecstatic and I thought I was accepting the wrong room. He was so happy. He gave me a hug and he told me the story that he had been in one of our last Bible studies. He'd asked for prayer and I guess we laid hands on him, prayed for his back. He had chronic back pain. And then a few days later, he had decided to take his own life, tied his bed sheet around his neck, stepped out at break, tied it around the banister of the upper tier and tossed himself over. And when he hit the, he hit bottom instead of his neck snapping, his whole back went into alignment and you know, the alarm sounded guards came in and held up his body. And not only was his back finally relieved, um, but I think he had passed through death into life and he felt like restored to life and was so happy. And he had called for a chaplain, not for post-suicide counseling, but he wanted to sing songs because I was the chaplain that would bring my guitar in. And I sat with him just, confused and in awe for an hour or so that night as we found things to sing together <laughs> in the suicide room. And I had thought about this story so much for the days and the weeks afterwards that what, what happened there? This, it, it, when you do nonprofit work, you do church work, ministry work, you, there's a genre of writing and it's the ministry update. 
you know, you, you tell a story from the front lines of the work that you're doing. And normally it's upbeat. It's kind of triumphalistic. It tells why the work that you're doing is good and helpful in the world. And this was not a ministry update. I didn't know what the story was because I was less interested. Like he thought that, you know, are laying hands on him and praying. And this was the answer to his prayer. I'm not sure I saw it that way. But I was interested in everything that was kicking up from my past about my best friend that hung himself in the closet, about my own suicidal chapters and uh, that I told very few people about when I was in college and I fantasized for months about stepping off the math building, about I was thinking about King Lear in our literature classes when Gloucester steps, he's blinded and someone guides him to his own suicide that he doesn't know is his relative who's trying to help him. He guides him to like a 12 inch drop, but when he falls, it's comic when you see it on stage, but something happens in Gloucester when he steps off in that pitiful little drop, he actually lets go of his whole life. And when he hits the ground, he hears, speak again, your life's a miracle. So I'm thinking King Lear, I'm thinking my past, this is not a ministry update. So that's forced me to kind of open a Word document and try to tell the story, imagining him leaping out and in my kind of like Terrence Malick and <laughs> affected imagination, seeing like a slow-mo, this kind of like, torn bed sheet twisted up behind him slowly undulating through the air as he's moving and what's the angle of his body dropping that it doesn't just snap his neck so anyway all this this is this is not a ministry update this is not a theological argument we're now in the realm of creative writing and then i started just working on that story for nights and nights right around the time i was applying to seminaries at the last minute i decided to sneak in an application to a MFA, low residence MFA program in creative writing. But it just felt indulgent, like eating chocolate instead of you know, having your dinner. Like, what if I did an MFA instead of actually getting my MDiv and being a pastor? And the last minute I got, I, accept, I got accepted both. And that last minute I said no to the MDiv and yes to um, an MFA. And it was in the MFA program I got to work with folks like Scott Cairns and Lauren Winter and some really great writers I'd always loved. Uh, Dennis Covington was a really great one. David James Duncan has been a friend and a mentor since then. I started telling stories as instead of arguing about the Bible, which is unfortunately what a lot of academic seminaries still is. You're still, you've got a thesis, you know, you, you back it up with German texts and scholars. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to tell stories because uh, I'd experienced so much goodness and I wanted to paint it, not argue it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that is, I think, a good way of, of describing uh, a, what sounds like a, a pretty visceral difference. Because you've obviously also done a lot of theological reading and, and thinking and, and ruminating and have an appetite for that as well. That story uh, from the chapter Angle of Descent if I remember right, it's about a guy named Edward. There's a couple of other characters, one named Richard, one who goes by the, the name Neeners, who really recur throughout the entire story. Richard's really bookends the book, and it sort of breaks up the book into, I think, six or seven different kind of mini chapters. I want to get you reading your own book a little bit here, and we had talked about you reading a passage from the fifth one of those chapters, so I'll let you intro the context a little bit, um, but this is basically you, This what you're about to read comes in the context of you being in the jail and in the middle of a Bible study that you're leading. Okay, so there was a really long chapter, or long story, or narrative essay that I'd written about this guy Richard called Wanted, that became the title of the book. And what I did is I kind of like broke it up, I don't know, like a big communion wafer and cracked it into several chunks and to stretch it through the whole book. Um, so those are like this, the flagstones walking through the garden of the book is, is this ongoing narrative of Richard. Um, and Richard early on, he was someone that um, I met in the, in, the, in the jail Bible studies who was so proud of the fact that he was Washington's most wanted for the two weeks that he was on the run was telling me about the dogs and the helicopters chasing him. And I, and I kept meeting with him one-on-one, -on -one, and he was hilarious, and he was confident. I, his voice was like a, a Tarantino movie or something that I just needed to go home and write down. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard, like, heard someone's voice or the way they talk. You just <laughs> – I can't take a picture of it. Like you see a cool sunset, you take a picture. When you hear someone's way of talking, you go home and you try to write down a few things they say because it's, it's so funny and unique. Um, 
so I, I was always writing stuff down. He'd say at our one-on-ones. And then he started really liking these Jesus stories or how I talked about Jesus. And he was on a lot of meth and he was involved in gangs, but he had a lot of pluck and, and he would tell stories about reaching out to guys all over the Valley uh, because he really loved not getting rich, but he loved everyone coming together for a party. And that's, and even when he was great at breaking into houses, which is why he got arrested. Um, and he would often, he told me stories about how he'd break in sometimes. And before gathering all the stuff and loading into a truck out back to sell, he's like, that was just a bunch of work, dog. The best part was when I just sit there for a few minutes in someone else's house and look around and pretend all this is mine. Cause I didn't have shit growing up, dog. And the image of just him sitting in someone's living room is both terrifying as well as so tender to me. But that's what he wanted is to be in someone's home for a minute, pretend that he belonged in our lives. Um, and anyway, so he started dragging everyone in his pod because he was a shot caller in his pod. He started bossing them all around. That everyone needed, God damn it, to come to the, he would say, to the, uh, our Bible studies. And he would line them all up and sit next to me and be like, all right, I brought everyone here for you, Chris, except that one old man who said, no, don't worry. I told him I'd kick his ass later. And he looked at me as if, you know, he was like, like it wasn't a joke. He was just like, I did my best. One couldn't comply. But his way of saying, I love you is don't worry. I'll, I'll kick his ass later. <laughs> um, so this comes in partway through a Bible study. Where we're talking about the feast where Jesus um, tells a story about the kingdom of heaven being like, inviting every a king who wanted to throw a big party he's like yeah he keeps summarizing and translating my bible study to everyone else like he wants to throw a big ass party the jesus or the king or whatever and you know these people the rich people they've always got too much shit to do but man he, he sent messengers to the streets then and said the good and bad everyone can come he's like that's us and he starts he's passionate about almost evangelizing himself and the whole pod in this circle to be like this story's about us dog we're in and then the story takes a turn. If anyone was raised in the church and knows this parable, that the house is filled with guests. And that's where I wanted to stop the Bible study because the little eyes are coming through the, um, through the glass door that the guard kind of gave me that let's wrap stuff up. But then this guy, Lorenzo kept reading accidentally about, you know, when the King comes in and starts being upset with some of the people in the hall and Richard gets pissed because he senses there's more to the story. Maybe he's been, lied to so this is where that comes in all right this is richard talking you go i said no it's okay lorenzo you can stop there i, I interrupted our soft-spoken reader in the group we'll read the rest next week that's when richard just like the first time i met him cut me off now nah, hold up chris fuck that we're not done keep reading he didn't like the worry he saw in the eyes of lorenzo who had already begun to read ahead in the parable Richard smelled foul play that I was covering something up. We don't have time, I explained with a forced smile to avoid the ominous verses that followed. But Richard's elation at the story was now already turning to pain like he'd been lied to. Keep reading, he ordered Lorenzo, and he crossed his arms while leaning forward to listen to the rest of the story. This is Lorenzo reading. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Lorenzo looked up, me, looked up at me from the reading. Just what I fucking thought, Richard stood up, and his chair screeched loudly across the floor behind him a needle across a record. The party was over. What the fuck, Chris? Why do you expect, what do you expect from people like us? We don't have all the right clothes. We never look right. You should know that. Though these were Jesus's words and ancient, Richard nevertheless held me responsible. As a gang member, he knew what it meant to represent something bigger than yourself with full responsibility. Why do you even invite us to any of this if you're just gonna fucking humiliate us and throw us out anyway? It'd be better not to come than to have you break our hearts. The guards were going to open the doors any second. This is what I was trying to avoid and handle with proper time and exegetical nuance the following week. 
You get our hopes up, he pointed at me. And it's fucking beautiful what you tell us, dog, that God is different, that he wants everyone, even the bad people like me. And I'm like fucking excited and I'm wanting to tell everyone. And okay, hang on. I interrupted him now, looking at my watch. I hope this would be one of the weeks when the guards have to handle a medical emergency and so leave us in here a while longer. I explained quickly. In first century Palestine, some scholars say it was the custom for the host of the wedding feast, especially a king, to provide these overgarments for the guests right at the door before they even got in the banqueting hall. Like those little birthday hats parents give to each kid who comes to the party, I said. It was the first comparison that came to mind. It's not about who comes dressed up nice or not, I told him. Everyone is given the celebration attire. So if this guy's not wearing it, it's not about poverty. There's some other reason he's choosing not to wear it. It's an insult, a direct disrespect to the host in front of everyone in his own home. Ooh, I thought this would register with a guy who lives by the street's code of respect, familiar with the pain of having his fragile joy mocked in front of others. I said, it's like this garmentless guy's refusing to celebrate for some reason. Now, the guys around the table sat silent, their heads moving back and forth between Richard and me, sensing something very important was at stake here. Richard then countered with the kind of insight no seminary could teach me. Even if they are give the little birthday hats like you say, sorry, if they're going to invite motherfuckers like us from the streets to your party or church or house or heaven or whatever, you should know we might not want to wear that shit on our heads. We're not going to right away play all the little games and rules how you do. So you didn't really want us at all. Or if you did, is it just so you can throw us back out in the darkness? What's it say here? Chains and gnashing teeth. Hell fucking yes, I'd be gnashing my teeth because that hurts so deep, Chris. His eyes confirmed this. It's better to stay in the streets with the bad people than be told you're wanted and then find out you're really not. I didn't know whether I wanted to stand with Richard now or with the text. I loved both. And like watching my parents fight as a boy, I desperately wanted them to love each other. I wanted to clear up the misunderstanding. The unresolved question underneath all this remained. Time was running out. Why would such a lavish host throw this guest out in the darkness? What if it's the other way around, jokes, I challenged. Now I had no scholar's text to back me up, just my own hope, a pathos pounding inside me. I had no disapproving pastor or professor to convince, only an unsavory man about to leave the table, a man I wanted as much as any other I'd ever met, maybe my whole life so far, to stay. He tilted his head to the side, willing and waiting to be told his worst fears weren't true. You're just assuming, I went on, the one not wearing the garment is one of the bad people who are invited off the streets. But it doesn't say that. What if it's one of the good people who feel suddenly uncomfortable around all these bad folks pouring in from the streets and sitting next to him or her? Someone who's too good to just look, to look just like the trash seated next to them around the table. Someone who needs to set himself apart, not putting on the same robe, putting himself on the same level as all the other undeserving fuck-ups. Now Richard's shoulders relaxed, but I was just getting started. How do you think the host would feel watching his new flood of guests that he invited from the streets to share his joy, now while feeling judged by this one guy who's totally killing the party? Now I'd never thought of this before. I was just suddenly choked with fury at this faceless character in the story who is making the mixed wedding guests in my mind as suddenly unsure of themselves as the guy around the jail table before me now. He'd throw that guy outside and he'd tie him up. I almost shouted at Richard as if it were a declaration of how I personally would defend him and his place at the table if I could. Let him get it out of his system, grumble all he wants until he's ready to come back in and share the joy of the king who wants everyone, even people like you. The doors clanged open with the same violent noise as ever. Richard was afraid to trust what I'd said now. It seemed too good to be true, at least. Back your shit up, Chris. He said on his way out the door with a finger pointed at me. Send me a copy of whatever scholar you're talking about. I want to see that in print. Man, that story hit me so hard the first time I read it. And honestly, I, I went back and read it this morning out loud to see, uh, just to kind of revisit it before we, we talked about it. And I cried, dude. I honestly, there was a few times reading the book right where I really teared up. And something about that story, it just gets to something so 
raw and visceral for me. Um, what, is, what is it? What is it for you? I think it's the way that his reaction gets at my own the like confusion or the the way that I can't perfectly reconcile the discrepancies in the biblical text sometimes, like the aspects of God that I've been taught about that I want so desperately to believe are true, but then also these other things that are kind of, I think maybe in hindsight, sometimes just just got looked straight past and ignored or tried to explain away that are just difficult teachings of Jesus's or strange things about the the Old or New Testament view of God that are just hard to reconcile. And so, so something about the way that he is just coming to that text and being like, well, this seems really beautiful, but this seems really messed up. There's just an honesty in that that is that was disarming and, yeah, just kind of touched a, a nerve in me. Yeah, I wonder if what Richard's doing there that would maybe resonate with readers or readers like yourself is what why it was so refreshing for me is that I never had the cure the courage or the kind of raw cultural permission to just stand up and just full throttle take off <laughs> on a scripture and trust trusting that a minister could hold that and engage with me um and i think that there's something liberating about richard that he would both would get excited about what's exciting and he would say what the hell about the stuff that our hearts suddenly recoil at a lot of readers probably weren't raised as uh, children of folks on drugs and in abusive situations and marginalized in society but i think that's what i found in the jail that even though i didn't have the torment and the disadvantage of a lot of these guys growing up there's it's almost like a, a political cartoon you know the caricature of what the kind of universal cry is and for all of us. And, um, and I, I think of even before it became a more political trend to be aware of privilege, I think I've always been aware of my privilege. Um, and that I don't, you know, I remember listening to a lot of Nirvana growing up, my dad being like, this guy sounds really upset. Why do you like it so much? What do you have to be upset about? And assuming, you know, my life is peachy. And so I think there's a way that there's a lot of complexity and hurt in our hearts that a lot of us in privilege don't really give voice to. Um, but when we read harder literature, documentaries, friends that can say it well, there's something resonates. I mean, you're already speaking to, to one of the questions I wanted to ask you about just that kind of experience, because it's, it's just one of, of numerous experiences that you recount in the book um, that are basically involve interacting around the Bible uh, with people who are clearly not very, if at all, formed in, formed by or knowledgeable, knowledgeable about or fluent in the biblical text, you know, in some ways for better, in some ways for worse. So I, I, I hear you that it was refreshing to, to have that just blast of, of honesty and that, that he was, and like many of the guys, kind of had a kind of savviness and his ability to kind of transliterate the context. But yeah, as somebody who's obviously like very, very literate, um, both kind of in a, in a literal sense with reading and writing and, and loving the written word and, and also in the biblical text, what was it like to, to read the Bible and look at the Bible with dudes who, who maybe weren't very knowledgeable about the Bible. Was that mainly refreshing? Was that kind of maddening at times? Where did that take you personally? Um, well, I, I was, uh, why I came up here, I guess, you know, there's, there's jails in every county in America. I came to learn with this guy, Bob Eckblad, who was uh, in the middle of almost writing and almost publishing his book, which I still think is his best called reading the Bible with the damned. And it's written for seminarians. And what he's doing is saying there's actually a really important role in these kind of dialogical Bible studies, he calls them, for the role of the facilitator, who, who do bring kind of the riches of the academy and um, facilitating group dynamics and inf all sorts of extra biblical information. But to bring that data in as, as helpful, but, to, but almost like, I don't know, when you're 
the image that comes to me is like when you're breaking down a chicken, you know, like you know where the good meat is and you can kind of like your knife becomes familiar, like where to cut and gristle out and to miss the bones that you, you know where the theological and heart meat is in these stories. And that's what we're trying to cut in these stories as you prepare the Bible study. And you learn over time to ask the questions that pierce with universal relevance and that they might actually know more about that passage than me. They've experienced what the people in the story are experiencing and they're going to be able to, they're more on the inside of that experience. What I can do is just kind of help translate or set up the parallels so that they're not confused by something distanced by 2000 years ago or culturally distanced by, you know, whatever needs to be translated culturally from, you know, Judea, Palestine, 2000 years ago. So I can help set up the question, invite the parallels, but as it's about asking good questions is what I learned from Bob that, that yield the beautiful, more beautiful answers. And so just reading it together, it could be a total mess, but it's about kind of bringing my hunger and my curiosity. I don't go in just trying to teach something. I go in with something that excites me and I think they're going to see something that's going to take me 10 steps deeper. And so that's kind of the role of facilitator for me, that my hunger takes me half of half the far, half that I try to boil into a few succinct questions and help. And then the conversation can take off where we all find ourselves in a place of wonder by the end is the hope. I actually at, at a few different points found myself just curious about like whether any of any of the men, certainly that you write about by name in the book or just presumably many more men who don't actually sort of make it as characters into the book, but whom you've worked with have read the book or have like read any of the, have read any of the chapters, you, even just uh, from the way that you kind of write out the, the way in which the man Lorenzo really kind of stumbles through reading the biblical text of that story. You get the impression, uh, which sadly I assume is probably true, that a lot of these guys like can't read or can't read very well, maybe don't enjoy or take a lot of pleasure in reading. So you've create, you create this whole book and it's about them. Like, do, do you know if any of them have read your work about them? And if so, what, what have they thought of it? Homies read so many books when they're locked up and they read even more when they're in solitary confinement. I don't know anyone that's read more than two pages <laughs> when they're on the outs. And what's tricky is that my book came out in hardback. It unfortunately has not sold its way or earned its way into paperback. So if everyone out there buy paperback and we'll try to boost sales into paperback because the hard hardbacks can't go into solitary confinement. And so I can't now send my book to a lot of the guys who are most have a lot of time in a concrete bunker to sit down and read it. However, I've sent it to a lot of folks in mainline places or just not in, um, in solitary confinement. And, um, it resonates pretty well, I think. I mean, I haven't heard really complaints. Um, as, as far as the feedback of specific people who I depicted, the main character, Richard, spoiler alert, um, that little Bible study is foreshadowing. He ends up being um, thrown into the darkness by the prison system, and he dies of uh, preventable gangrene infection within a year of being shipped off to prison. Um, so he, he literally rots to death in prison. So I, Richard never got to read this. Um, but uh, two of our, our final letters, uh, I relay verbatim towards the end of the book. Um, I, wish, I wish I could show it to Rachel. I mean, Rachel, <laughs> that's my wife, Richard. Um, but some of his family didn't appreciate it. And I probably should, I'd learned as a pastor and write, writer doing those two different things well, they oftentimes conflict. Um, that some of the things that Richard told me about his childhood, uh, I thought were completely uh, warranted for that story, but I hadn't really thought about like, oh yeah, those characters in the past, they might still be alive in the valley. And someone's going to tell them, hey, dirt on your child rearing is on page two of this book that just came out. So that was hard. I feel like the obvious thing you always think about as as a writer or somebody who's who's stopped and thought about what any kind of memoir or writing nonfiction writing about somebody who is still alive entails has to do with like you know yeah pissing off your your own family like writing about your uncle and he's still alive um, 
but obviously you write about anybody and there's probably going to be somebody connected to them. Is that something that you kind of, it sounds like maybe you just didn't think about that a ton or that to the extent that you did, you didn't anticipate that. Did anybody else like the, any of your advisors be like, ah, maybe you want to leave that out or was it a really a conscious intention to leave it in? Oh yeah. I mean, it, normally, normally, normally they weren't, uh, published authors in my MFA program. It was always peer. It was always peers that get the most self-righteous about the rules of writing. That's how it is with anything, right? Like brand new parents are the most legalistic about how you, what you need to do and not do. <laughs> you know what I mean? You talk with the retired folks and they're just like, you know, here's the hearts and here's the basics. But you have, you know, you meet someone who's only three months into parenting and they know exactly what the diet and nighttime schedule needs to be, right? And so new writers get really bossy and self-righteous um, about um, non-fiction ethics. Um, and it's a constant conversation in MFA and writing circles, memoir, who's right, whose story is yours to tell is kind of like the way you, you begin the conversation. Um, and every author has different kind of personal feels on it. There's no, there's no law. There's no ethical standard. Um, some people come at it journalistically. Some people are like poets, but they fill up the page with more words than, than verse. And, um, there's all different ways to come at it. For me, the, my pushback to a lot of them is what I ended up after I had most of the manuscript ready. I go back to a moment that um, I, uh, with Richard when I was visiting him through the glass. And it was not only, it's just a classic Richard moment, but it was indicative of what I heard over and over from different guys where I would begin with, hey, one day I might want to write. Or I was just taking a lot of notes in this scene with, with Richard. And he's like, okay, hey, you can write a book one day. And I was like, oh, I don't know, that'd be cool. And then I got really scared. Like, is this going to impact our pastoral relationship? Does he think I'm just like get, getting the artistic goodies out of him instead of being a spiritual caretaker? I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry. Like, I, I don't have a book planned. Um, but if I ever did, don't worry. I would like to show you drafts of everything. I'd disguise your identity. I'd change your name. Those are the standard things you do. And he got like really offended, <laughs> like a lot of people, like he did in that scene. He was like, we're invisible dog. Why the fuck would I want you to change my name? I want you to tell the whole world about me, but you don't, you better not change my name. Motherfucker. <laughs> that's what, that's a quote of what he says to me. And, um, he was like, you see us, Chris, well, you got dirt on us. A big, big freaking surprise. Like we're criminals. And so many guys were just kind of confused by the general ethical framework of those questions that oftentimes come from, I don't know, I would say people of privilege, that don't want oh, some unfortunate detail about their life to be aired out there, that we have this privilege of manicuring the perception of our positivity. Whereas a lot of those, these guys have been in the paper for lies and terrible things. And if they have someone that really cares about them telling some pretty honoring versions of their stories, they're not really tripping. Um, so that was my stance through a lot of these stories. Um, but now, um, and I still feel good about all the stories that I told, except for, as I said, kind of adjacent family members to some people. Um, but now the, the next book I've been sketching out and working on the last three years, this exact question is just stumps me every single month. I've got my dad in there. I've got my grandpa. I've got my uncle. I've got a gang member with some really sensitive stuff. He's told me that is perfectly in line with all these things in my life. In one month, he's like, yeah, absolutely. Write it. And then two months later, he's got some different ups and downs. And I don't feel that he would want me writing stuff. Um, and so the, the, that nature, that relationship's up and down. My writer, Chris, involved with him, and my pastor. I've had friends regale me about that I shouldn't be doing this. Um, and my pastor in the community, and my writer, and my both. So then I try to like bring that forward in my conversations with people. Like, hey, I'm not talking as a pastor, I'm a writer. Don't want you to be stung by that later. Would you be open to talking about this? And actually, I put that in the story, and then they're surprising responses to me. So I've, I haven't figured it out, man. It's actually getting much messier because wanted doesn't go into too much of my personal story or people in my life. Um, but this next thing I'm writing sure is kicking up connections with my family history. So ethically, am I allowed to? Sure, I'm allowed to. But as my wife says, what kind of relationship do you want to have with your dad in the next 10 years? I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Because <laughs> if you do, if you write what you're saying you're going to write, that's, 
can't not affect your relationship with your father. Yeah. I have no agenda against him. It's just true stuff. But yeah, what kind of relationship do I want? What's the value in writing that versus the value in maybe protecting that relationship? Well, that could be a good segue into one of the other specific anecdotes or stories that you tell that, that totally, totally wrecked me. And I'll explain why. But there's a... Um, there's an inmate who, his name is Nieners. He's uh, in solitary confinement for uh, for several of the stories that you tell. He spends a long time in there. It's not it's not fair, but he's in there. You bring his daughter to visit him. Drive like hours out to the to the prison where he's being kept, and you take her uh, you take her to visit him. And there's yeah, at the end of the scene, basically, you know, he's on the other side of the glass in the in kind of the stereotypical booth where he's got a like a phone up to his ear and you all have a phone and and she's like sitting there in her pigtails and patent leather shoes and she's like singing to him and he's just weeping i think he tells you later that he hadn't cried in like 10 or 15 years up until that point and i just i kind of lost it reading that i have a two and a half year old i know you're a dad when i stopped and thought about it it's it's i there's few things in life that i can imagine that would would fill me with more grief than like that last moment when i was being you know marched out of a courtroom or put on a bus or whatever and just knowing like wow i'm not going to touch my child for years what was it like for you to write these stories like on an emotional level was it was it cathartic or did you feel like sort of vicariously traumatized i guess primarily by the actual experiences but then you know you're revisiting them as you write these stories like did, did you feel like you had sort of worked something out by the end of writing this book or did you feel like you'd kind of been like dragged you know behind a truck or something like what was it like because there's, there's a lot of dark stuff in this book mm. yeah well i mean i've been in therapy the last four or five years and I'm curious how throughout my work, almost nothing ever made me cry. Uh, even those memories, um, and even as I wrote them, I think there was a part of me deeply buried that was crying out that needed to write these stories as a way of going back to them. And in a nice way, like there was such a remove or a thick buffer inside of me that I was never like, emotionally dislocated or thrown off that like I could totally like totally see it as a painter and this is beautiful like, it was like I was watching a movie you know like this is moving me yes this scene yes but I wasn't like affected like choking up or getting angry um but I don't think it's because that might be part of like what my issue was as well and I think as I'm getting healthier I think it's harder to come back to those things because that disconnect between my head and my heart is closing or it's healing. So I, I don't know. I, um, a lot of those stories, I didn't, you know, like I was, I didn't cry. I was an overwhelmed feeling them. I just felt, Whoa, this is meaningful. This is freaking meaningful. Um, and then when I'd go back and write it two years later, cause it's haunting me, this is meaningful. Oftentimes when I'd be doing a reading sometimes at a bookstore and I'd hear my own voice reading the story is normally the first time, maybe eight years removed from when the story's happened, three years removed from writing it, uh, that I'd find myself really coming unglued and, and tearing up. I don't know how that works. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your work um just less in a literary context now and, and a little bit more uh, about how your work with prisoners uh, and your work with uh, often the the overlaying kind of Venn diagram of an immigrant community, how that is kind of interacting with our current political moment a little bit and about just how it has on an ongoing basis intersected with your experience of the church and how other Christians respond to or think about or treat or, you know, serve or don't serve, vilify or don't vilify the people that you're working with. So I guess just, just generally in terms of, of, of prisoners, people who've been incarcerated often for very, you know, objectively bad, violent, sinful things. Um, how, how is the church doing on the front of, 
showing people mercy, visiting prisoners, helping them reenter society, which is a pretty central, a pretty central admonition from the overall gospel narrative. How, how are Christians doing on that front? Oh man, there's so many different subsets of Christians, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I can imagine you've had some some bad experiences and some good experiences. In the aggregate, do you feel do you feel hopeful or do you feel discouraged? Oh yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can aggregate, but I I, I can appreciate the strengths and weaknesses of of different different parts of you know Christendom. In general, first, I found that. The, the kind of conservative psychology versus the liberal, um, both in the church and politically, as pertains to those who are locked up, it's really interesting. Conservative groups, uh, evangelical, often leaning, oftentimes are the ones with way more boots on the ground going into facilities, um, doing, you know, leading church groups, leading Bible studies, leading, you know, men's accountability and healing and Oftentimes, it's the conservative churches who are going in with a lot more volunteers or conservative programming, conservative theology even that goes in, which is puzzling to me. I think maybe because they have an emphasis on like personal transformation and, and uh, evangelizing. Um, whereas the, the, the more left-leaning, left-leaning or progressive worldview Christians are much better at having a bigger um, consciousness of the evils of mass incarceration of uh, structural injustice, race, poverty. Um, and so they get the big picture really well, but they actually have way less people that are actually going into facilities and being in a relationship. And conversely, you know, the conservative churches have a lot of volunteers that go in and do prison ministry, quote, but yet they belong to a political system that's creating that hell in the first place. And, and uh, the oftentimes don't see the connection. So... That's interesting to me. Um, but what left wing or right wing aside, what we found and what we're doing now with underground ministries is something we call one parish, one prisoner. Instead of just me working with gang members throughout the state and trying to onboard three or four more former homies to be on staff with me as we accompany a long roster of gang members to be in relationships through letters and visits and putting reentry plans together. And when the book Wanted came out, me and uh, my former colleague, Nieners, who worked with me for a while, um, when he got out, we'd go speak at a lot of churches, and they'd say, well, what can we do afterwards, you know, other than buy a book or donate to underground ministries? And at first, I was just, I didn't really know. I was just pretty cynical. I'm like, I don't know. Like, it's pretty bad. This huge system, we're going to change it tomorrow. Um, help us do what we can. But so many of the guys we're working with were actually not releasing to our home county, but all over the state because it's a said the prison system is statewide. The local county jail where I'd worked uh, for years as a chaplain, the county jail, they're all releasing right in the come from that county. Once you get shipped off to prison, that state. So they're mixing up with people from all over the state. And then one homie has a celly writing me and we're getting close, but he's going to release to a county you know, three hours away. And so it's hard to drive all the way over there and assist them in their reentry. But actually, we've spoken at two churches over in that county. And so we started thinking, and someone gave us the rough data that there's roughly the same amount of churches in Washington State as there are folks locked up. What if every church, theoretically, had a relationship with not a program, but just one person? And they had time to write letters and build that trust and relationship and could welcome them home. Everything that someone needs when they come back in the community is right there in the church. Not only the finances to buy the basics that they need, or someone has a used car, someone knows somebody with a car rental, I mean an apartment leasing, someone knows somebody who's an employer, but really just aunts, uncles, mature people to love you, say welcome back, which is the core wound of incarceration. This is your unwanted. Even if some nonprofit gives them all the, the materials, the deeper message is that this community isn't wanting. So I go back to the shadows. But if a community could say, we want you, we love you, that's healing for both sides of this broken social equation. Anyway, so we're doing that. It, it went from like a neat idea to now we're three years into our third iteration. And we've got 12 churches now doing this. And it's messy and we're refining the process. But what I found is I always knew like when I'd say, you know, this would not only empty the prison system and 
facilitate resurrection locally, but it would change every church. I don't, I wasn't really specific in my imagination of how that, what that change would be. But what we're finding, what I'm finding is that people's own personal undergrounds, their repressed stuff, that churches are really good at helping people hide under being high functioning, under being religious, under being nice. There's so much repressed pain and shame and family secrets in upper middle class and in churches that oftentimes people in prison, it's as if prison were the national, national subconscious. So when you start welcoming someone, it's not just oh, a prisoner and we should do that in abstract and according to the gospel, it sounds good. But then they start saying, wait a minute, this guy's got a domestic violence charge. One church, church eight months ago said to me, and they got really nervous. And the team leader was like, I might not buy you the right person for this. I went out for coffee, you know, and she started being a little bit more personal. I have some experiences with domestic violence or violence in the home growing up. And what we thought the conversation was going to go into, all right, how do we make even more robust and nuanced boundaries um, and make a way for people to bow out if their stuff gets brought up? The conversation advanced in such a beautiful way where she's talking about what happened in her home growing up. And her friends were very involved in the church. And we're like, wait a minute. This is so endemic. So many people inside churches are dealing with this. And she's like, why do we never talk about it? The only reason we're even talking about this today, and it feels so good to, is because we're in relationship with someone coming home from prison with the DV charge. And so then... it started getting flipped instead of these people, churches are safe places and the contaminants are out there. I think we hit into it. We, we, we got underneath that BS story to know oftentimes people are hurt all the time in churches and we are no less clean than the folks who get caught um, or, or hurt one another in different ways. But how can we have like a all eyes open relationship with someone coming home that forces or invites us as a community, or actually liberates us, gives us the gift of talking about our own lives as well, where we can drop the mask that we actually are the healthier ones that we have it all together, and where we can be in kinship with someone with a really broken story that needs healing, and so do we, and we come into that kinship together. That's where I'm getting really excited, and other churches are dropping that narrative we even tell ourselves. We feel guilty about how privileged we are. We want to help the underprivileged. That's kind of a one-dimensional story as opposed to I am privileged, but I'm aching for transformation and healing myself, and I don't know how to get there. And this being in relationship with someone leaving prison might be the way for me to go deeper in my own healing, in my own faith, because I feel so stuck. And those, these people coming home from churches are turning out to be really wise as they're both monitoring vulnerability, like, hey, I need a lot of help. They also have gone through a lot of their own transformation and are real humor and everything we were just talking about with Richard, like how Richard was to me. That's what some of these churches are finding. And it's a much richer story instead of we have so much to offer. We can help these poor souls and or which is maybe how conservatives would say it or liberals would be like we have so much and we want to like, you know, create equity or whatever. Yeah, but maybe on a deeper level, we, we, we need one another. And we're not that privileged. We are economically, but on a soul level, we really need one another. We both need a richer conversation. We both need a relationship that helps us drop both the shiny masks and the grimy masks and become who we really are together and before God. It certainly is a really very obviously polarized time in our country. And also, sadly, the church is sort of a a microcosm of that, in my experience. To the extent that you have, even if it's just an imagined um, kind of good faith interlocutor, you know, who might might compassionately but firmly argue sort of another side of some of these these broad questions about um, you know who who we should allow to come to the United States or who who we should or shouldn't lock up or for how long, what would you say to the person who maybe just has a different ideology or a different temperament or disposition? Like, what is the thing that you would want that reasonable fellow Christian who has a different perspective, maybe doesn't know any prisoners, to to consider or to remember in terms of 
the call to have mercy because you you really paint a picture of these guys as people who have and and who are themselves very open about having done things that are bad and have required some kind of response from society even if it's been totally over the top in terms of what our quote unquote criminal justice system often provides or as you just mentioned in the story you just told who have been harmed themselves what is the thing that you are asking them to consider uh, in regards to a person like Richard who might frighten them, who might anger them, uh, but who, in your view, really is still a beautiful and equally beloved child of God? Well, I think, first off, why I'm glad I wrote the book that I did, that, as opposed to like a, like a lot of Christian nonfiction these days, that they tell some anecdotes, but it's like sermon stories. You know, the book is, is an argument. The book is we need to X, Y, Z, or we're going to help you do X, Y, Z, but I'm going to make the, you know, the book more palatable by telling stories Then I'm glad that I wrote a book where I'm not asking a reader to do anything. There's no, Hey, me author talking to you church or you Christians, we need to do this. Um, it, they're really just stories. And I think that's, what's helped it get into a lot of conservative circles is I'm not, I don't, I have no prescription or political Therefore, we need to, uh, you, as you grow to just love Richard, something happens in readers that always surprises me. I'm always surprised that more people wouldn't be like, yeah, you, well, I feel emotionally manipulated. This guy's a piece of shit. Or if they said it in, you know, Christian ease, they'd be like, this guy's hurt a lot of people and I, I don't feel that we should care for him. So few people say that. I think just by storytelling, I've created a vicarious relationship and people start to just just care for the person. It's like a, they're hiding in my pocket while I get to go and hear these people and love them. And then when Richard dies in the system, people feel like that's not right. Not because I'm arguing in a Facebook post how messed up the Department of Correction is. It very much is. But it's just a different approach. Um, but by storytelling actually cuts into that kind of that sweet meat I was talking about. Like the choice me in liberal and conservative sides, like it gets our hearts and avoids kind of the skeleton of whatever our worldview structure is, is, is how I think about it. And so, so that's the story. And I think that's why that's opening doors and why I'm one person, one prisoner is a way to then create a real life version of that is where getting people into relationship. We're not saying, Hey, you need to do this advocacy against the system to change this law and join our ACLU organizing in Olympia which I'd love to have them do as soon as possible. But our first goal is to just get someone in a relationship and that when you care about somebody, everything changes. So relationship is transformative in a way that sort of reasoning or argument is not. Yeah. People who buy the whole kind of like bad ombre thing are people that have not met many bad ombres. <laughs> you know, you don't just, a lot of my kind of like leftist organizing friends and especially in the immigration age, they really want to lift up the stories of like the noble immigrant, like the dreamers is, is, is the main one, you know, kids, brilliant kids, high school students, college students, I've never done anything wrong. And I, th on one hand, yes, that's the majority of what we're dealing with immigration. That's the face we need to lift up. But I even want to say, Hey, if the bad hombres you're talking about, I'll, be, I'll introduce you to the bad hombres. Like, these are broken people that are a lot like you and me and your uncle you don't like who have their own hopes and their dreams. These aren't, these aren't demons. These aren't terrorists. It's a lot of the people you see in the white house interviews are a lot scarier than these guys. They're just really depressed and traumatized and did a horrible thing one night, went on meth. But when you get them sober for 24 hours and, and ask them questions, they feel such authentic remorse and self-awareness that I wish I saw in more of our national leaders. Well, the book really moved me. Thank you so much for for expending the effort and taking the time to write it. Uh, it really it really was a powerful story for me. I'm glad you liked it, man. It encourages me to keep writing. Before I let you go, just tell us briefly about kind of what's next. You've you've mentioned working on a new book. You're working with Underground Ministries. Kind of what's in the pipeline? When is this book going to cohere and are we going to be able to read it? Are you writing essays anywhere else? What's going on? The, the, the book I'd like to write this year, finally, I've got a whole binder of notes I organized the other day. 
so it's not just piles streaming around my office is um i'm writing to my little boy i don't know if anyone listening has read um gilead i didn't like it at first but uh i do now realizing i'm, I'm a father and that unprocessed stuff i'm trying to that i'm more and more realizing when i carry a tiny little person around and i'm seeing the world through this person's eyes why do i do the work that i do why do i go into the jail um and I find myself writing to my little boy um, about some of these stories that start pinging back and forth between telling some dark and interesting and wild stories of these guys that I know. Most of them not even locked up. There's one or two guys locked up, but just kind of fringe stories in, my, in this valley. Almost every book I write, I want to be right here in this valley, which I love. I, is, um, I don't know if any of them would be essays standalone that I could publish. I think I just need to write this whole thing in the dark and come out with a full book of weaving these guys' stories back and forth between my past and their stories and holding my little boy as I kind of talk to him about my story and trying to find out, do I only write some of it to him? Because some people are like, you shouldn't, it feels uncomfortable to be writing about some of this material to a child. And so I, th I might be writing to him as far as the memories I'm having with him day to day and letting him know what living with him and writing to him is doing to me as I revisit these other stories. So I'm, I'm figuring that out. But it would, if I wrote it, had to write a summary to my agent, it would be a true crime mashup with Gilead written today by 2020 Gen X pastor writing to his kid. Gilead meets true crime. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I can't wait to read that if and when it, it ever comes to light. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, maybe you can just, maybe you can give me that info and I can put it in the show notes. I, I know there's an Underground Ministries website if people want to get involved or check out what you're doing there. Yep. Yeah. Underground Ministries. My personal site's not that updated, but it's chris hoke dot com and undergroundministries.org. And what we want to do is building on top of our uh, One Parish, One Prisoner organizing this year, where we're going is to create online modules of three tiers that people everywhere, hopefully nationally, could, we can start sharing, is the individual track, the church track, and employer track, kind of resources for practicing resurrection in an age of undoing mass incarceration. So some best practices and some tools and letter writing and reentry to equip folks if they just maybe it's just their, their best friend or their brother-in-law or their son who's locked up or maybe whole church is doing one person prisoner or employers that want to hire folks but they want to do it well so we want to create these materials and have them go out on social media and website and so if anyone out there sounds interested in this especially if you're in the northwest and you're good at social media you're good at website stuff you're good at photography we're getting our whole online education game together. So hit me up. All right. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Another huge thanks to Chris Oak for coming on the show and to you, whoever you are, for giving me an hour of your time and listening to the debut episode of Faith in Letters. I appreciate it so much. Thanks again. Talk to you soon.